Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. It's the first show back in the new year and I wanted to do something just a little bit different today. It's the time of year when many of us are making resolutions and trying different things, maybe starting a new hobby. And as I thought of that, I thought about all the people who have approached me since my first book came out way back in 1997 to tell me that they had always wanted to write a book, but they didn't know how to get started. The new year is as good a time as any to get started on your dream of writing a book. Today, I'll give you some information on how to write your own book. In the last few years, I've interviewed hundreds of writers and received lots of advice, and today I'm going to share some of that with you. Now, it took me years to figure out that my creative process wasn't so much a process as it was an ongoing progression. When I was starting out, I did research on the methods that other writers use to really get the juices going. I tried some, took others under advisement, but nothing really seemed to work. Then it dawned on me, to be truly creative, you have to find your own way. So keep in mind the information that I'll be sharing with you today is meant to inspire you, not exactly be a roadmap. Now I could tell you that I enjoy sitting at my cluttered desk with my brass statue of King Kong to my left and a strange sculpture of an egg with legs to my right, that I listen to an internet radio station that promises never to play the same song twice in your workday, but breaks that promise on an almost hourly basis, that there's a bottomless 20-ounce mug of tea within reach of all times. I could tell you all those things, but they don't really mean that much. They are the creature comforts, the things that surround me while I write, but they aren't part of my creative process. Neither are the time that I start typing, how many words I write in a day, or how many breaks I take. These are all questions young writers ask when they're trying to find their way. Here's my advice, and I borrowed this from Nike. Just do it. Put pen to paper, fingers to keyboard, or quill to parchment, whatever it is that floats your boat, but do it. As time goes by, you'll figure out your own process, and that will be the best method for you. It won't come easily. It shouldn't. It's called a process for a reason, and the struggle will make you a better writer. I recommend lots of tea, but I hear other things work just as well. Or not. That's the interesting part. There are as many processes as there are writers. But there is one thing common to everyone who puts words together. And that's inspiration. So that's why I spoke to musician and author Tom Wilson. He wrote a book called Beautiful Scars, Steel Town Secrets, Mohawk Skywalkers, and The Road Home. It's a beautifully powerful read. And I asked him about intent versus inspiration. That's our starting point. We don't really know what often inspires us. It's it's the sum total of our lives. It's the sum total of our interests, I suppose. But how do you see inspiration being different than intent oh well uh you know sometimes we uh we don't necessarily need uh, a pat on the head sometimes we just need a kick in the ass and that boot <laughs> and that boot that kicks us in the ass is inspiration um it might come from uh one line from uh, a book or uh, or a song mm. uh, or it might come from uh, visiting a gallery and seeing someone else's work or just even opening up our computer and seeing an image that that moves us uh, to the point you know part of um part of the artist's job and i talk about this all the time is uh opening the door possibilities to the next person to walk through i also reach back to 
an interview I did for uh, an art exhibit I was doing uh, about six years ago, and I was on CBC uh, Q with Tom Powers. And uh, he asked me, uh, at the end of the interview, he asked me, he says, so what do you want people walking away from your art exhibit saying? Mm. And it didn't take me, like, I mean, it was just like that. Uh, I said, I want them to walk away saying, I can do that. And uh, it's either, you know, we, as artists uh, or as people that create what wasn't there yesterday, we we run into, uh, you know, two groups of, of people that say that. It's either people who say, I could do that, right? right. right? Or people who are just, uh, who have uh, swallowed your work so whole that, it makes them want to go do that, mm. that I can do that, that it uh, opens up that door of possibilities. And that's, that's, a, that's a big deal because we're in a world that uh, tells us uh, a lot of what we can't do. And uh, we're in a world that uh, yells at each other and has stopped listening to one another. You're listening to Tom Wilson on The Richard Krause Show. Find his episode of Amplify on APTN or streaming on APTN Lumi. So art is something that is able to communicate uh, with us through all of that anger and all of that messy that this world has created for us to live in. Um, it's sometimes our only little bit of salvation. Um, and it deserves to be honored. So inspiration can come from almost anywhere. But when I think about being inspired, when I think about coming up with that flash to get that idea that makes me want to put pen to paper, I always think back to an interview I did with David Lynch. He was promoting the movie Mulholland Falls. It was quite a few years ago, but this has always stayed with me. He said, ideas are like fish. If you want to catch little fish, you can stay in the shallow water. But if you want to catch the big fish, you've got to go deeper. So go as deep as you can. Find a story and an inspiration and an idea that is going to push you forward. That's going to make you think. Because if you're inspired by it, your reader will be as well. Unless you're writing a nonfiction book or a memoir or something like that, there have to be characters that spring from your imagination. I spoke with Chris Hadfield. Everybody knows him as an astronaut, but he's also a very good writer. He's written two best-selling thrillers, one called The Defector, one called The Apollo Murders. And because he's very methodical about his approach to everything, and I guess that comes from being an engineer and an astronaut, he sat down and studied the thriller form and then tried to figure out how to create characters that were going to compel him and compel the reader. That's how he came up with Kaz Semekis. That's the main character in both his thriller novels and someone who he finally crafted to fit the stories that he wanted to tell. Here's Chris Hadfield. Um, I, I really made a study of it when I was looking at how, how do you write thriller fiction? You know, I, I learned to fly F-18s. I learned to, to scuba dive. You, you just you get someone to show you and you do a bunch of study and then you practice it and get better at it. But I, I was thinking, how do you choose a recurring main character they can't just have a run-of-the-mill job they can't just be doing one thing because there won't be enough variety in their life in order to have them reoccur in multiple books you and that's why often things are like at a hospital because there's all those characters moving through or a police station or a law firm or fantasy island or something you know or love boat it's because you have 
recurring characters, but a constant natural flow through of other things. So when I chose Kaz Zemeckis, I gave him all the skills. You know, he's got multiple university degrees. He's a combat fighter pilot. He's a test pilot. He got qualified to be an astronaut and then he was injured. Mm -hmm. So that now he couldn't do all of those predictable things, but he has all the skills. So that frees him up as a wild card for me. I can now insert him into all these other situations and and it's not unnatural for him to be there because you know what else would the military do with them and so uh so i was i was quite deliberate in how i i chose a main protagonist and and i gave him you know uh, uh, as much an interesting back i didn't call him tom jones you know he's he's a lithuanian jew uh, whose parents fled world war ii and came to new york and and uh with a name like Casimira Zemeckis but but he's a you know 100% through and through American and uh and serving his country so so yeah uh, I really like the character and the freedom it gives me as an author I've had a, a number of authors tell me that when they're writing characters whether they are just for one book or they appear over and over again there comes a point where the character kind of takes on their own life Douglas Copeland told me one time, it's almost as if his characters sit on his shoulders and whisper into his ears what they want to do. Uh, do you have any experience with that sort of thing? Oh, it's even more than that, Richard. Um, they they aren't just with me to help write the book. They're with me all the time. You know, they're, they're like they're like perpetual consultants in all the things that I'm doing. Like you know, when I'm faced with any sort of situation, I hear what what would Kaz do? What would Svetlana do? What would JW do, given that this is what's happening right now? And and to me, it's kind of funny, but they are just as real as a, as a voice within my own head as the people that are also my consultants. You know, you always hear your own voice from your own life, or you hear your parents or your teachers or whoever, your spouse, whoever else was influential in your life. It's it's quite a surprise to me that these characters that I invented are now uh, very much a part of my process in considering options when dealing with the world. So yeah, and, and then you just sort of turn them loose. Once I've decided the arc of the story and, uh, and where they're gonna come in, then, they are just going to do what that person would do next. And, and, and then you got to go, Oh shoot, that this is what Svetlana would do now. You know, what else would she, this is what she would do. And so the story has to reflect that, which is kind of delightful. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but sometimes it then pulls the story in a direction that I wasn't expecting, but that's okay. Uh, it, the book should also be a discovery, not just for the reader, but also for me. Well, if they're not surprising to you, they may not be yeah. surprising for a reader as well. Yeah. yeah, I don't want it to be formulaic. And, and so to me, that's the whole idea of it is, is this interesting human being, and now they're faced with something they didn't expect, and it's historic, and what happens next? That was Chris Hadfield. His book, The Defector, is available wherever you buy fine books. In this segment, we'll have a look at another really important component of creating a character, and that's creating a really cool name. Something that sticks in the head. There's James Bond, there's Harry Potter, there's Bruce Banner, there's Peter Parker. Now, what do those last two have in common? Those last two were created 
by Stan Lee, the legend from Marvel, helped create the Avengers and so many superhero characters that lived in comic books and have come alive on the big screen. And he had a really unique way of naming his characters. And it was as much for him as it was for the reader, but I think it's really interesting and it's kind of funny. Here's a little part of an interview I did with Stan Lee a few years ago. For decades, we've been, we've grown up with Bruce Banner and Peter Parker and things. How did you come up with the names? Was And I've just noticed that alliteration seems important to you. In Very the, important, Dan. It's, be, so. it's because I have a bad memory. <laughs> and if I could remember what one of the names was, like it, it was Spider-Man. If I could remember his first name was Peter, then I knew his second name began with a P, and it was easier for me to think of it. And that's really the only reason. I have a terrible memory for names, and by putting the first and second letter, making them the same, I had a clue. If I thought of one name, I had a clue to what the na next name was. <laughs> I think that there's a little bit of everybody in all of these characters. I think that's why they seem to be popular, because I tried to give them all hang-ups and some weaknesses, and that none of them are really perfect. So they're just like regular people, I hope. Okay, so you've been inspired to write a book. You've got a handful of cool characters. Now you have to actually get down to the hard part the actual writing of it. Now, a treatment is a great place to start, and we'll talk about that in a little while. But you need to think about writing in terms of the potential of what it offers. It's very difficult on the first day of any new book project, and I've been through this 10 or 11 times now, when I sit down and I see the blank page in front of me, and it used to freak me out because there was nothing on it, and I had to fill it up. Then I saw a movie called Patterson, starring Adam Driver. In the movie, he plays a poet who only writes for himself. He's got a notebook, and he writes these beautiful poems in them. By day, he's a bus driver. One day, his dog eats the book of poetry, destroys it. It's gone. He doesn't have copies. He is inconsolable. He can't believe that all his work is gone. So he goes for a long walk. On this walk, he meets another poet, a man who is just passing through town, uh, doesn't know Patterson, doesn't have any idea of his work. Patterson tells him the story. Dog ate my only copy of all the poetry that I've ever written, and I am devastated by this. And the man gives him a book, and he thinks it's going to be a book on the artist's way or how to create from the ashes. Instead, it's just a book of blank pages. And the man says the words that have stayed with me for years now since I've seen that movie. Every page is a possibility to do something cool on it. And that is something that once you get over that hump, once you get over that, it feels really great. But a lot of people have the fear. A lot of people have the fear of the blank page. So I asked author C.C. Humphreys about getting over that fear. So this was what he had to say. How do you overcome the fear? Well, I, I mean, as I say, I, I, I sort of teach this stuff now. And, and, and what you do each time is, is you sit down and you engage with the story. It's, there's, always, there's always something to be done. You know, you start writing 
And I, I, come up with, I came up with this ridiculous phrase years ago. I, I sort of gather my students together and say, listen, I've got to teach you the secret of writing. Quick, don't let anyone else hear. The secret of writing is writing is writing, right? And I realized that, that, that I mean, it's, it sounds facile, but it's absolutely true. You, you know, of course, you can think about all sorts of things, but when you're actually sitting down and writing, it kind of happens. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and if you just let it happen and you remove the words good and bad from your vocabulary and just write it, write that first draft. It's not good or bad. It's not compared to anyone. It's just there. You've got a story and then you can start to apply some critical faculties to it. And I mean, I'm, I'm summing up something that took me years to figure out. Um, you know, and it's not that I don't sit down some days and go stare at a blank screen and go, oh, how do I do this again? Yeah. But because I've done it for so long now, I gradually just start doing it. And that's, that's how you overcome the fear. You sort of, uh, you, you defang it by just saying, I'm just going to write something and see mm -hmm. what happens. It's like I said in the introduction to this show, just do it. Now, of course, with writing, as with anything, there are good days and bad days. I just finished writing an article that took two days to write. It should have taken two hours, but finding every word was like dropping a line into a lake and waiting for a bite. They did bite eventually, and now the article's done. It made me think of Steve Martin, who once joked, some people have a way with words, others not have way. Well, the latter is me today. Other days, the words really flow. But remember, typing isn't writing. The words have to be well chosen, and they have to be in the right order. There's a great story about James Joyce, the great Irish author who spent 10 years writing his first two books, Dubliners and A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. So a friend goes by to visit him one day, and he found him sprawled across his writing desk, and he seemed to be agitated. James, what's wrong? The friend asked. Is it the work? James indicated that he wasn't having a great day and that things weren't going particularly well. The man said, well, how many words did you get today? Joyce, who still sprawled across his desk, he says, I got seven. Seven, but, but James, that's good, at least for you. Yes, said James Joyce, finally looking up. I suppose it is, but I don't know what order they go in. I love that story because it's all about making sure that the words are well chosen, that the words tell the story, that the words, as James Joyce said, are in the right order. That's so important. Next thing you do is create a treatment. And this is not the place where the real writing is done. This is where your thoughts are kind of put into order. You're creating a roadmap toward the book as you see it in your head. So it'll save you a lot of time later on if you spend a few days or a week creating this roadmap, starting at the first chapter, maybe writing little shards of dialogue, describing your characters, pushing the novel all the way through the various story points until you get to the end. Of course, it can change along the way. This isn't written in stone, but as you get to know your characters and that kind of thing, you may have some ideas that pop up that change the direction of things. But your first thoughts are, generally speaking, your best thoughts in terms of where the story is going to go. So a treatment doesn't have to be long. Anywhere between 8 and 10 pages probably will get you through, and it just creates a way forward for you so that when you get stuck, you refer to it, and you can move on. When I think of writing and the books that I have written, as I'm doing them, 
as I'm working through them and working through the ideas that are in them, I always think of Kurt Vonnegut, the great Kurt Vonnegut's first rule for being a writer. And he says, use the time of a total stranger in such a way that he or she will not feel that time was wasted. And a treatment is a great way of making sure that your ideas are cohesive, that they follow a certain logic, and they follow a certain path. Before we get down to the actual nitty-gritty of writing the book, I thought you should know what you're in store for. So I have quotes here from two interviews that I've done with two different authors. Tom Rockman, who is the author of the best-selling book, The Imperfectionist, talks about what happens once you've written a book and released it into a world that is just absolutely jam-packed with information. It is a... a a troubled and strange situation to be a writer today. And I have to begin by making clear that I feel incredibly lucky to be able to write. I love to do this. And it's amazing that I'm able to just about support myself from from writing. So uh, I feel uh, I'm amazingly fortunate. And that's the that's the key part. But when you're working and you're sitting locked away in your study, typing ferociously and hoping that you're creating something that is of interest of, to others when it's certainly engaging you, you then eventually stop typing and you stand up and look around and you see a culture that is extraordinarily flooded with information and ideas and words and sounds and films and entertainments. And, and the nature of literature is that it requires close concentration. It requires a certain amount of focus. And if you enjoy books, then all of that focus and concentration is repaid many times over from the, the, the joy of sinking into a story like that. But it's harder for, for everybody, myself included, to attain that level of concentration and focus. And the result is that it feels like literature is gradually being crowded out a little bit. Not that literature is, is about to die or anything. It still exists and has many strengths. But it feels like possibly the position that it has in society is being relegated a little bit. And that's terribly sad and, uh, for a writer to see. And um, But it's also true that no writer has a right to be heard, to be attended to. You have to convince people that there's something to say. And all throughout history, most writers have been, just like most people doing anything artistic, have been entirely overlooked. And Sometimes it was absolutely justified and sometimes it was less justified. But the point is, is that there isn't space for everybody and you can't expect it. Um, in this period in time, it does feel like it's harder than ever to have people pay attention to, to fiction. And that makes it a little more difficult when you stand up from your, from your, from your desk. Karina Chong, author of a book called The Whole Animal, talks about how releasing a book and releasing your ideas can make you feel. You know, I, I, try, I often use writing as a way to make sense of these, these things that are swimming around in my head that, you know, I, I feel um, confused about or I just have a lot of questions about. Mm -hmm. And I put them down on the page in the form of characters and that kind of helps me to make sense of it in some way um, or to acknowledge it and name it. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to publishing these stories, the great thing then becomes sharing that experience with others and hopefully finding connection. Like I, it's wonderful to hear when people say, oh, that like that just reflected back to me my own experience in some way that was, you know, really illuminating. Um, that's like ultimately the goal I think is to, yeah, to, to make those connections with readers too. 
Karina is right. Writing is a great way to express yourself and make connections with other people, even though, as Tom pointed out, it's a very solitary job. So if you're still on board with this, if you still want to write a book, you have to come up with a great opening line. When I think of great opening lines, lines that really pull me into a book, I always think of the opening line from Hunter S. Thompson's book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It's a great line. He says, we were somewhere near Barstow on the edge of the desert when the drugs began to take hold. It brings you into the story. And I was reminded of that recently when I was interviewing author Michael Crummy. His new book, The Adversary, is a bestseller. And in one of the reviews that I read for the book, it talked about the opening line, this incredible opening line that he crafted to kick off the action. So I asked him about it. And here's the line. It'll grab you, I guarantee. There was a killing sickness on the shore that winter, and the only services at the church were funerals. How important to you is a big grabby opening line like that? Or is that just something that this reviewer happened to pick up on? Yeah, I think it was just something that he happened to pick up on. I I mean, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the first line as I, like maybe more of the first paragraph or something like that. Um, but I have to admit, like, I think that was the first line I wrote for the book. <laughs> um, I, when I sat down day one, that was the line that came out and it, it did feel like that was the place to start. You know, it really felt like that, that was the tenor that I was hoping to set for the story that was going to follow. Now you're off to the races. You've started, you've written the sentence or the paragraph that has established the tone of what is to come. As Ernest Hemingway said, to get started, write one true sentence. And then you write another one and another one and another one and another one, and eventually the book is done. I've spoken to a lot of authors about how they work. Linwood Barclay had an interesting way of breaking a book down so that it doesn't feel like this big monolith, this mountain that will be impossible to get over. He just takes it one day at a time. So, I mean, when I get up in the morning, I have a goal. I want to get about, I aim for like 2,000 words. And so if you can write 2,000 words a day, uh, at the end of the week, you've got 10,000 words. In, a, in two and a half, three months, you've got a book. Now, that first draft may mean, you know, I mean, you're not done, but uh, how good that first draft is will determine how much more time you spend on it. But, you know, if you look at it like, oh my God, how many, I've got to write a book this year. You think, no, I just have to write, I want to get 2,000 words done mm -hmm. today. As you're working away to get your 2,000 words a day that will eventually end up as a book, here's some other advice to keep in mind. Ernest Hemingway always said that when he was done for the day, the best way is always to stop when you're going good and when you know what will happen next. If you do that every day when you're writing a novel, you'll never get stuck. He also says that when you go back the next day, read back the last two or three chapters that you've written just to get back into the groove of things. And then once a week, Read it all right from the very start to keep it fresh and vibrant in your mind. 
One of my favorite authors, Kurt Vonnegut Jr., also has some really personal advice. He says, write to please just one person. If you open a window and make love to the world, so to speak, your story will get pneumonia, he says. Now, I'll add my own thought to that little bit of advice. I always think that if I like an idea that I have for a book, at least 10,000 other people will as well, and that's a bestseller in Canada. George Orwell, the author of Animal Farm in 1984, had six rules for writing. Here's three that I use every time I sit in front of a keyboard. Never use a long word where a short word will do. If it's possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. And never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word, or a jargon word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. In other words, keep it simple, stupid. People have often also asked me for advice on where to write. A lot of people like to write in coffee shops or they'll make notes on the subway or wherever it might be. I'm not good with that. I like to sit at my desk in front of my computer and put my hours in that way. But one of the great crime novelists of all time, Elmore Leonard, who passed away in 2013, told me a few years ago when I interviewed him on stage, he said, I have written like this just about everywhere. In Hollywood hotel rooms, I have written screenplays in longhand and even on the beach. But here's the part of this quote I love. But writing on the beach is not what it's cracked up to be. The sand blows and you perspire and the page gets all bloody and messed up. So I don't do that anymore. So choose where you're most comfortable and get down and get to work. Finally, I've always really liked this quote from writer Neil Gaiman about having confidence in what you're writing. He says, the main rule of writing is that if you do it with enough assurance and confidence, you're allowed to do whatever you like. And that's pretty freeing. We've gone through many of the steps to get up and running as a writer. It's not easy. Gene Fowler said, writing is easy. All you have to do is sit staring at a blank sheet of paper until the drops of blood form on your forehead. It can be frustrating because no matter how good you are at it, there's always room for improvement. Hemingway, one of the greatest writers to ever put words on a page, said, Writing is something that you can never do as well as it can be done. It is a perpetual challenge, and it is more difficult than anything else that I've ever done, so I do it. That's one reason to do it. Another is that you do it because it's a challenge. Like Thomas Mann said, a writer is someone for whom writing is more difficult than it is for other people. You do it because it's often as much about grit as it is about creativity, as W. Somerset Mom said. Often, he continued, writing is not an act of genius, but an act of will. But most of all, you do it because you have ideas that you want to share. Even if you don't have a fresh idea, you may have a new spin on an old idea. If you don't think you have anything new to say, though, remember what Andre Gide said. Everything that needs to be said has already been said, but since no one was listening, everything must be said again. Here's something that no writer wants to hear said. It's the one word that we haven't talked about so far, and it's the one word that most writers dread the most. The word is deadline. I spoke with Stuart Reynolds, aka social media star, Brittle Star, and author of Welcome to the Stupid Apocalypse: Survival Tips for the Domageddon. 
about his process of having a plan to hit his deadline, having that plan derailed, and what he did next. It was good to have a deadline. Mm. And uh, that deadline, the speed that uh, the speed of which it approached increased dramatically every day last year. Yeah. Um, I had uh, planned to kind of, you know, I, I basically set up a schedule. I had planned to sort of write out, just take this long summer and kind of write stuff out and be really sort of, you know, contemplative and pensive and stuff like that. Yeah, it doesn't like, work. Oh, it doesn't work. And then we got, and then both Shannon and I, my wife got COVID and uh, that ruined us for July. It literally wiped me out for July. And uh, it was like, okay, now the deadline is a month closer. <laughs> and uh, that was, that was really motivating though. My oldest son, Owen said, uh, he said, uh, you know, this, listen, don't worry about it. This is all good authors, you know, miss their deadlines, but I didn't miss my deadline. I didn't, I actually hit my deadline, which was good, but it required like, just, it became my job. And that was really weird for me to kind of be like, this takes priority over everything else. But at the same time, I think it was probably good for me. As much as most writers hate deadlines, Stuart is right. Having a deadline is good for you. Even if you don't have a deadline from a publisher or someone who is paying you to write the work, if you're just writing this on spec, it's good to have a drop dead date not only do deadlines motivate writers to complete their work on time, but they create a sense of urgency. They help focus the writer's attention and allows them to concentrate on specific projects without becoming overwhelmed. Do one thing at a time, move forward, and remember what E.L. Doctorow said. Writing a novel is like driving a car at night. You can only see as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. A little bit at a time, working towards a deadline, and you'll finish your book. But now that the book is done, what do you do with it? Now, a lot of writers use what they call beta readers. Those are husbands, wives, friends, family, who have a look at the book before anybody else to give their opinions. I hate that idea. Don't use your friends and family. Best-selling author Linwood Barkley explains why. I did an event the other night with Ian Rankin. For his new book and a woman came up a young woman was asking both of us asked for writing advice and we both sort of gave her a couple of little quick things but the one thing i told her was that if, when you show this to your mom or your boyfriend and they say it's great don't believe them because yeah. what else could they say yeah i that is one of my rules and not just with uh the writing uh with anything television radio whatever it is that i do I don't trust my friends because what else are they going to say? What could they say? Yeah. What you could know? they say? So yeah, you, just because your mom thinks you're great doesn't mean uh, that it's, <laughs> it's nice to hear, but it doesn't mean it's true. <laughs> it's, kind of a, it's a variation on a phrase. My dad used to say when I was still alive, he'd say, you may be the world to your mother, but you're a pain in the neck to me. You know, it was kind of like, that. <laughs> that's amazing. Let's assume by this point in the process, the book is done. It's gone to the publisher you've run it through your agent, you've run it through a year of rewrites and editing, and now you're at the release date. The cool thing, the thing that I remember the most about when my first book came out was the day the box of books arrived. Now, it's a big day. When you sign a publishing contract, you get a deal where you get 25 or 50 copies of the book sent over in advance of it coming out. I had dreamed for my entire life of seeing my name on the spine of a book. So when the box of books arrived, I knew that that dream was set. 
That was it. It was going to happen. And I sat and I stared at that box forever before opening it because I knew the way that my mind works. I'm going to open it up. I'm going to have this brief moment of elation. And then I'm going to think, oh man, now I have to do this again. I have to write another book. But in that moment, when I opened the box and saw my name on the spine of a book, it made all of the hardship of writing that first book disappear it was all completely worth it. It was, as best-selling Métis author Cherie Dimeline says, magic. I spoke with her about the release of her book Venko, which is a novel about a coven of modern-day witches, and she compared writing to the idea of casting a spell. This is a huge part of everything, about talking about the extraordinary inside of the ordinary, allowing ourselves to feel yeah. joy. As an artist, it's so incredible. And it really does feel like, I just, I was speaking to someone on a, uh, an interview earlier, and you know, she was saying, have you done any spells? And I, I was like, not that I know of, except for the fact that a spell is just words in a particular order yeah. with intent. And the intent is to take what I'm thinking or the image in my head and to give it to someone else. And, and really, I mean, that's what writing is. And so when that's successful, that moment of connection, when your work goes on and has a life of its own, that's magic. Cherie is like, it does feel like some kind of magic when the ideas that originate in your head hit the page and then become a book and get out in the world and have a whole new life that you have nothing to do with, but other people are reading your thoughts and your words. It's a very cool feeling, and I hope maybe this show has inspired you to not only get out there and write a little bit, even if you never get published, it's a good way to really organize your thoughts and get your feelings out, but if you do write, and you do like it, maybe you'll start to think like a writer. And by that, I don't mean that you're going to think about where semicolons go and, and how to use an Oxford comma, all that stuff. That's what editors do. Writers think a little differently. Writers think in terms of collecting experiences that they can then put in their work. I spoke about this with best-selling author Ashley Adrain, whose books, The Push and The Whispers, are both number one bestsellers. I collect a lot from my life, you know, from nothing direct, you know, from people. But, but you have all these conversations that spark a thought, that spark another thought or you have an interaction with somebody or you're eavesdropping you know on somebody in the lineup at the grocery store or there's all kinds of things that happen you know in your day that you almost just take for granted you might take those experiences for granted but they'll feed your work and make you a better writer thanks to all my guests today but most of all as always my biggest thanks goes to you for listening i'm richard Krause. stay happy stay safe stay healthy stay weird and start writing that book oh.